Hello, my name is Lance Weiler. I'm a storyteller and director of the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. You're listening to Columbia DSL's Sandbox, a podcast where we explore new forms and functions of storytelling. People mostly do ask you, right, like after you say you're an artist, what kind of artist are you? And I used to say new media, but it's not quite a good description. So I usually just have to tell them the long story, like I'm an artist and instead of using paint or marble, um, I use different types of emerging technologies because my practice spans everything from growing cultures of microorganisms to use chemical protocols to create perfumes. It's really vast. (laughs) It's a good question because I feel like I really am still discovering the answer myself. Hi, my name is Annie and I'm an artist that often collaborates with scientists and engineers. My practice is at the intersection of art and science. And for me as an artist, it's interesting to look at all of these scientific shifts and emerging technologies and to question how that reshapes what we consider being human to be today. That's an interesting combination there. Like how did you come to focus on that type of work? It's kind of funny. I feel like I came to arrive at this combination of art and science almost accidentally and autobiographically. You know, I grew up in New York in Chinatown and my parents are first generation immigrants. So they really always really hardcore pushed me towards math and science and disciplines that they thought would um yield a more safe outcome, I guess. And since I could remember I've always been obsessed with the arts. So I feel like this combination was kind of like my subconscious trying to integrate the two. And I actually started by studying architecture because architecture is this beautiful combination of structural engineering and all kinds of other engineering and aesthetic experience. But while I was at school, my last year was kind of an exciting time I thought for an architect because the Oculus Rift had just come out and Google Glass had just come out and for me suddenly it felt like I had already learned so many tools about space making and all these digital tools for fabrication and then suddenly there were new technologies that were altering the way people would perceive space going forward so I think that was my major leaping point (laughs) That was like such a big year for me because that was when I really shifted from a life of pursuing architecture to, I think, a life of pursuing this kind of art technology combination. But what was really exciting to me at the time was it was the first time it really forced me to confront how these technologies shape the way we think and behave and um, almost become invisible in the landscape. Up until this point, I had used a lot of 3D modeling software to design real spaces for people to inhabit, theoretically draw the plans for buildings that could be built. And then suddenly I was using the same, a very similar interface in software to design spaces that people were meant to inhabit virtually. Are all of these worlds and all of these avatars and all of the things that I'm making a certain aesthetic because the tools have specific libraries or specific algorithms 
It's a Marshall McLuhan quote, but I really started thinking a lot about how these tools shape us. His famous quote is that we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. The existence of Tinder might impact intimacy or the way that Google Maps changes the way people have mental maps and um, experience cities differently, especially when they travel. This was um, my first moment thinking like, wow, this could really radically change the way people relate to spaces or interaction. Um, and it, I think, as with a lot of other theorists at this time, I became really interested in this fluid seam between the virtual and the real and how they feed back into each other. As I started to investigate this and I started to grow as an artist, it started to become not just the real and the virtual, but also the scientific real and the experienced real. Can you talk about that? What do you mean by the scientific real and the experienced real? What, what, what is that exactly? This is something that I find so interesting that we look to science, um, I think rightfully, to look for truth, um, that we try to make sense of all of the phenomena in this world through evidence-based truth, through the scientific method. But I guess as an artist, what I find interesting is that the truths in it of themselves are somewhat neutral, but the way we relate to them is very profound. So for instance, like when Copernicus discovered that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, it wasn't just a matter of truth, but it was like a huge existential crisis because it challenged the church and it challenged the way humans situated themselves in the universe. Or like, you know, when Darwin comes around with a theory of evolution, it deeply impacts the way we spiritually and culturally and existentially construct ourselves. So I think these are the things that more and more we have the tools to redesign what it is to be human itself. And we have more and more tools to kind of unravel and peel back what consciousness is or how do our minds work. And um, not only that, what does it mean to make an artificial mind or an artificial intelligence? Um, and all of these are in and of themselves like really intense technological and scientific underpinnings but at the same time I feel like they're also really philosophical and um, existential questions for humans to be asking. I think that's like on one end and then on the other end there are other small things that I found or maybe not so small things that I found when I was doing this research like we do try to be very objective in our pursuit of science, but of course, papers and research is conducted by humans with their own social and historical prejudices. So, for instance, in one of my projects, um, shortly after Trump's election, after you know all of these very inflaming comments he made about women, um, especially this you know, quote he had, grab them by the pussy. I, I decided to do this project where I would try to control the movement of sperm with my mind. Like I was like, what what is the most male thing that a female can can control? And it has a lot of really interesting technical details. But while I was doing the research, it was really interesting because I was reading all of these papers about the movement of sperm and about reproduction and about galvanotaxis, which is the phenomena by which um, cells and single-celled organisms move in electric fields. And all of these papers were written objectively, kind of, but they were super colored with um, 
sexism in a lot of ways. So it was a case where, you know, the truth is one thing, but the way it was communicated made it super loaded. Um, so, for instance, papers where literally I think the quote was something like the heroic journey of the sperm to the passive egg um, and and basically the narrative in these papers would be like if the egg wasn't fertilized it was basically sloughed off like garbage um, there were images of a sperm and an egg but it would literally just say portrait of the sperm and the egg is completely ignored um, and so it became interesting to me also to look at the way the scientific objectivity is still colored by its cultural context. And of course, we are humans <laughs> with flaws who do this research. So my interest in this kind of art, science, culture intersection spreads between both the impact of scientific revolutions on the way we perceive ourselves culturally but also like how in many ways science is not super neutral and reflects certain social constructs of its time so maybe it's the same way of saying the two ways of saying the same thing but um it's something that's really interesting to me how do you classify what you do because what you just mentioned or what you just talked about in terms of controlling sperm with your mind and this mix of art and science, how do you go about, um, you know, like if you ran into somebody and you were talking to them, you know, what, what would you, what would you say? How would you kind of describe that, the, the practice, the work itself? That's such a good question because it's something I really do struggle with. I feel like at this point in contemporary art, we are past these kinds of typologies, but in fact, people mostly do ask you, right? Like after you say you're an artist, what kind of artist are you? And I used to say new media, but it's not quite a good description. So I usually just have to tell them the long story, like I'm an artist and instead of using paint or marble, um, I use different types of emerging technologies because my practice spans everything from growing cultures of microorganisms to use chemical protocols to create perfumes. It's really vast. <laughs> it's a good question because I feel like I really am still discovering the answer myself. With that project, just to kind of drill down a little bit more on the, the project that was mind-controlled sperm, what was the actual title of the project? And uh, or the piece, and how did people experience it? Can you walk us through, you know, where was it staged? What was the process? Like, what did you see? Uh, how did you interact with it? Title of the piece kept changing back and forth, but I think the most straightforward didactic title is just Mind-Controlled Sperm, A Woman of Steam Grabs Back, and Steam references science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. It's kind of like an umbrella term for this, I guess, genre of study. And the way that it works is I was sitting in a class in a, a class called How to Grow Almost Anything, and a researcher from Stanford was teaching about something called biotic games where he was controlling the movement of paramecium with electric fields. So um, he could get a paramecium to 
swim left or right in a game of pong by switching the electricity and I thought this was so interesting and for whatever reasons I immediately wondered if this worked with sperm and what the philosophical implications of a woman controlling something like this also it was just so interesting to me that instead of moving pixels it was like this living thing that was being treated as a pixel and so that was also something interesting to me and something that continues to be interesting to me in my practice is that in a lot of traditional art and still even in my work mostly we use metaphors like we might want to make something about female empowerment or um, a piece about control and you might depict images that have the metaphorical ability to to communicate this power but it's kind of interesting for instance with game design or different kinds of media that we have for storytelling now that in this piece at least like a woman actually controls some sperm with her mind so the way that it works is that she wears um, an EEG um, I started with the emotive but I switched to the muse which is um, I think it just has four channels and it measures the alpha and beta waves in the brain which is attention and relaxation and by learning how to control her thoughts in this way it sends the electric signals through a Arduino and then the polarity gets flipped back and forth on this little circuit board that I created on a glass slide where a drop of sperm sits and depending on the way you're thinking a majority of them will will swim either left or right. It's interesting because engineering the system was challenging but then communicating it aesthetically was a totally different challenge that also required a lot of thought like how how to keep a piece like this dignified and about control and female bodies and biopolitics um, was kind of interesting so I filmed a video for it and it was in a warehouse and basically there would be the woman the EEG machine and then the microscope in which you could see the circuit and the sperm and then Everything the microscope sees is projected in a large kind of projected petri dish in front of the woman, so almost like a pond where you can see all of these sperm enlarged. And then as you inhabit different mental states, you start to slowly see the movement of uh, the sperm switch back and forth. I've only shown it twice, and it's, it's interesting to hear the responses of people. I talked to so many women who talked about how all their life, <laughs> pretty much, they had to mediate this negotiation with birth control and their bodies and hormones. Um, and it just becomes almost like a, th a thing of anxiety. And then suddenly it becomes, in this new context, a moment of empowerment through this experience um, and I also talked to men about it and it was really interesting because they would often voice how violating it felt to see such a thing for this piece at least like the sperm is outside of the body and doesn't even belong to any of the men in the room and still there's such a visceral response so my hope is that it can give also moments of empathy for women who have to go through all kinds of um, reproductive control trauma basically dealt by the government. Can you give us a sense of, you know, how does a project start for you, you know, and, and can you share, you know, how, how you approach that work? 
in my day-to-day life i'm super nerdy and i like keep up to date with all of the scientific findings like i try to read a lot of journals i read a ton of tech blogs and i apply for a lot of grants so i feel like when i'm reading all of these papers and getting all these tidbits of um groundbreaking news or science i get inspired and i make a lot of notes in my sketchbook and probably kind of nerdily i also put them in a airtable database <laughs> and i tag them today i read an article about a scientist at UPenn who's developing brain stimulation probes but instead of them being like metal and inorganic he's growing them out of like a biological material so potentially someday we might be able to do deep brain stimulation with a material that our body doesn't reject because our bodies reject a lot of these kind of brain interfaces after a while i put it in my air table and i tagged it under a few things and i might come back to them when i'm writing a grant or if i've won the grant looking for researchers to collaborate with so for now at least my work is heavily grant funded i write a lot i read a lot and then i think also kind of traditionally a lot of the inspiration comes from emotional events in my life right like the election was a super emotional event for me um and it made me think about like what can artists do on a cultural level um in light of certain political realities certainly <laughs> moments of heartbreak or death in the family or you know any number of kind of natural rhythms of life might inspire me to create a piece So I would say that probably most of the work is grounded in something more in like the human emotional event and then I might try to find the research. I don't know, it's like a weird nice mix. So for instance, um there was a project that I did where I tried to grow a flower that smelled like someone that I had loved and lost and It's kind of a funny thing because at the time I was doing a lot of research on synthetic biology and I was reading a lot about gene edits and I was reading a lot about plant biology and um olf- olfactory volatile molecules but at the same time it just so happened that my heart was aching in a certain way <laughs> and so it all like convened together to create that project. So you were going through some degree of a heartbreak and you wanted to create a flower that would smell like your ex is that accurate at that time i had been in a long distance relationship for 7 years and in any relationship of that length long distance there's a lot of ups and downs um and i was thinking a lot about <sighs> we would have a lot of fights and they would be really torturous but often if we saw each other usually it'd be okay again and i think a lot of it was just looking into each other's eyes and touching each other and like the smell of each other so i was really thinking a lot about how how could i recreate this embodied experience across across the geography that we were living in because we already have phone right like we can hear each other's voice we have skype and we can see each other's face but there's still something really missing and um this is probably way too much information but like at that time i started to notice that i was like just 
really growing a lot of plants. Like, I think that in this kind of stereotypical way where someone is like, she's become the cat lady, I think I was becoming the plant lady. I think at some point I had over a hundred plants <laughs> in my apartment, and they really did keep me company. Like, I really felt that caring for them in some ways looped back to care for me. Like, it really did help with the loneliness. I started to think about all of these things at play you know there are there is research that shows that really depressed people or people in long-term hospital stays tend to do better when they start caring for a pet like a bird or a cat or a dog or something like that and I don't know if there's research on plants but I was really feeling this way about my plants so also serendipitously around this time I met um a chemist who was trying to become a plant scientist named Nome, and we started just having really long late night conversations <laughs> about what we would engineer if we could engineer anything or like what what we would spend our passion time on if we had extra time um, at the same time I was also reading a lot of political texts and paper about the human relationship to nature and whether it was okay to engineer plants for human use. I was reading a lot of, I guess at this point, kind of historical <laughs> papers on what Monsanto was doing to agriculture and the industry and how they were engineering seeds so that they could be patented, um, making gene edits so that certain seeds couldn't naturally reproduce unless you had some other thing like I thought this was so interesting it was like the encryption of biological data for commerce and I was also thinking at this time like is it possible to you know use these same technologies to make art just for art's sake like the same way that we we probably invented microcontrollers to hack codes for war or something like that but now people use arduinos to make beautiful art and so i was like can i use genetic engineering to make art that is profound and and transcendent and expresses something really emotional instead of just for profit so this project started like that and it was really complicated to tell you the truth and we never did finish engineering the plant that smelled like someone but along the way we learned a lot of different things. We ended up making a perfume that smelled like someone instead. What what was that? What was that piece called? And can you uh, can you give us a sense of like like for anybody out there who's wondering, okay, well, how would you actually make a flower smell like a you know an ex lover, or how would you you know even make a perfume that potentially smelled like an ex lover? called The Botany of Desire, which is um, the title of a book by Michael Pollan where he talks about the human relationship to nature. And anyway, the book is a lot more than this, but it's really interesting because at some point he even talks about whether certain domesticated crops are evolutionarily really successful, quote unquote, because for instance, now they propagate like crazy and there's um, their species is very live and well because we love corn or whatever. So the, okay, so the engineering of the plant, it's really interesting. Um, like with a lot of things in our own bodies, there are certain metabolic processes that cause us to create certain molecules. So for instance, in plants, there are specific molecular pathways that then create volatile molecules that c cause a plant to smell that way. So we were looking at um, uh, Serencia, like uh, Nepenthes sanguinea, 
and it's a it's commonly known as a pitcher plant, and it's a carnivorous plant that has、um, this giant bell-shaped tube that collects moisture, and then bugs get attracted to the moisture and then crawl in, and then they can't crawl out again. We we're looking at a lot of carnivorous plants that produce decaying flesh-like odors to attract the bugs that they eat. We were just looking at these existing pathways and trying to see if we could just tweak one of those to produce the kind of molecules that make you smell like the way you smell. So then the second part was okay, great. We have some pathways that we could potentially engineer. We haven't done it yet, but first we need to know what are the molecules that make you smell the way you smell. So we took a whole bunch of. Worn T-shirts,、um, and we put them under a GCMS, which is a fancy machine that measures the molecular weight of gases and things. We tried to reverse engineer from the data that we saw the molecules that that produce this specific odor, and it turns out that that was even really complicated because, as you can imagine, it's not just one molecule.、Um, even most perfumes that you put on. Have you know like a top note and a mid note and a bass note, so it's a cocktail of a lot of different things. So we did, we tried, we like put it through the GCMS. We tried to find chemical recipe for the the human smell, and then at some point we realized like we could probably just get the same smell in a very traditional perfume making process. So the same way that people make essential oils. Um, which is that we would take a stinky T-shirt, we would put it in a solvent. The solvent would then capture all of the volatile molecules, and then we would distill the solvent, and then get this like essence <laughs> of the smell, and then we would fix that smell onto other chemicals that would make it last longer.、Um, so that was the that was the process. To kind of close out, I would love to ask you, you know, what's one thing. That you wish someone would have told you that you've had to learn through a lot of trial and error, because it sounds like there's a lot of trial and error within the work. Something that now helps you make better work. I think this is the tension that there is a big part of me that's very analytical,、um, and it's almost required because I do read such technical papers, and then sometimes. I write code or whatever it is, and it it requires a certain part of my brain that's really logical. But I think all of the work that has ever moved me is very mysterious. So that relationship between being that very logical, conceptual self that can articulate things super clearly and almost like didactically, and then the part of myself that can create things that is mysterious and emotional and Allow myself to investigate things that I can't actually articulate yet is really important. And like learning when to quiet one down so that the other can voice itself is something that has always been difficult and continues to be. But I think because I'm older now and I've done more projects, it's something that you kind of like trust yourself in the process. <laughs> I think a lot of people always say these things, but I really do think that it's re- really important to make mistakes and just own them. Like I used to be really devastated if one of the tests or one of the projects or w- one of the 
the intuitions didn't work out but now I really do see like this failed but it informed this and then my work grew in this way I don't know I think also for me and maybe this is kind of personal but like for me it was also it took me a long time to learn also to be confident <laughs> and to be able to defend my work because at some point it is kind of based on intuition and gut feeling and I felt like I had no right to like defend it because unlike a scientist I didn't have I don't know like a record of evidence for why this should be this way and not that way but I think at the end of the day it's important to be able to defend yourself as an artist and be like actually no this is this is in and of itself like you know, not published in a paper, but shown in a gallery and has a, a legitimate life of its its own in its own right. Annie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And we wish you the best with, you know, your upcoming work. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in exploring new forms and functions of storytelling, make sure to check out Columbia DSL's new prototyping community, You can find out more information at digitalstorytellinglab.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. Special thanks to Peter English for composing our theme.